and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your host, Ray Gerard, and with me in studio once again, Bob Hennigas. Bob, welcome again. Thanks for having me here, Ray. I enjoy every uh, every opportunity for this. It's a it's a great joy and a and a pleasure and a passion. Well, I enjoy you know having you here. I, when we first started doing these podcasts way back when, you know, um, uh, you weren't with us, and now I can't imagine trying to do these without you. But um, but we'll dispense with all that and get down to business. So this is St. Paul's Letters to America, and this is the program that I asked, hey, if St. Paul were alive today and he noticed and was around and could see what's going on in America today, yeah, do you think he'd have anything to say about it, or would he just – Think, you know, well, you know, I've got absolutely no comment on any of this. We're doing perfectly fine. Well, maybe not. I believe he might write us a letter. He might write a letter and say, listen, guys, listen, listen up. So what would he tell us? What would he say? If you've ever wondered that, you came to just the right place. We're going to tell you exactly what he would say. We know we, we tell you every week what he would say. And there's kind of a simple reason for that. And it's simply this. I don't think St. Paul would change a thing of what he said 2,000 years ago. I don't think he'd change his mind. Um, if you're connected to God, if you're wired into the, the – if you're hardwired in or wired to the truth, you don't change. You just don't. So anyways, so uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, on today's program – uh, we're going to talk about uh, destruction, title of our program, Target of Destruction. And what's in the crosshairs? Well, we'll, we'll tell you in a, in a minute. Um, kinda, I think maybe just uh, change things up just a little bit. And before we tell you what we're even going to talk about, we're going to start with this letter from St. Paul. I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the call you have received. For building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the extent of the full stature of Christ, living the truth in love. We should grow in every way into him who was the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held, held together by every supporting ligament, with the proper functioning of each part, brings about the body's growth and builds itself up in love. So what's, um, what's uh, significant in this particular reading, which uh, we borrowed from his letter to the Ephesians, is this talk of building up, building up. He mentions that twice in these few short passages. Building up, and he and he talks about the whole church coming together in knowledge and in love, growing, uh, getting better, healthier in a spiritual sense, and actually reaching up towards some pinnacle, this, this unity with, with Christ. It's a very positive, up-looking kind of message he wants us to grow and build and get, you know, go higher. Well, this week in our culture, in our society, we had a bit of an event that took place that kind of contrasts with that notion. 
This week, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court had a leak. And this is a subject that's a little near and dear to my heart, simply because I am a member of the legal profession. And when people take oaths, whether it's simply as a witness in a trial, whether it's as a member of a jury to dispense justice fairly, or whether it's as a lawyer to be an officer of the court truthfully and faithfully, to abide by the rules of legal ethics, to abstain from any kind of fraud or deceptive kind of practices as you're carrying out your duties and responsibilities as a lawyer so that the profession is held in high regard because we as members of this profession do things that affect the liberties of people. If you're a criminal defense lawyer, you have in your hands some control, some, over whether uh, a person is going to lose his freedom and end up going to jail. If you're not doing criminal law and doing other things, you, you know, what, what you do can make a difference between people maybe losing some property or, you know, losing a judgment in a civil case and losing money, I mean, losing their property and a whole host of, of other things that can come up. When people have serious disputes and problems between them, they go to the courts and lawyers are a dramatic part, an integral part of that. And people normally feel, Ray, that they are going to be treated fairly by the court, uh, that there is going to be justice. Uh, we, we use that term. And so for a person like myself that's not in court very often, I at least have the thought that the folks that are involved are going to try to do things honestly, justly, follow the laws, follow the rules, and that the people involved are going to do the right thing. And as you mentioned, it's not only lawyers and that sort of thing, but the, but the jurors and everybody else involved, they take an oath. The witnesses stand up and take an oath. So help me God, I will tell the truth and nothing but the truth. It has to be based on that system. You have to have faith in the system. You have to have faith in the institutions. You have to feel and know that the people that are going to be deciding your case, the people that are going to be involved in your case, are going to be honest. And if you think for a minute that they're political, then that kind of undercuts the entire system, the entire fabric of civil order. If this, the deck is stacked, if things are not fair, if you have a crooked judge, you have a crooked policeman, if things are not fair, then you don't trust any judge or any policeman. Uh, and, and then the fabric of society breaks down. People have to have faith in their government. Now, it's an interesting kind of a word, you know, to use here in this context. People have to have faith. You know, usually on this program, we're talking about faith in, in, a, in a religious context. But you do have to trust, a better word. You do have to have trust or faith in this system. And that is absolutely, that's even more important when you're dealing with the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court deals with decisions that extend from coast to coast. A decision of the United States Supreme Court now will affect the law that governs over 300 million people. These are, it's the only court that has that wide of a level of, uh, of, of influence. And these decisions last for decades, if not centuries. These are significant decisions. They decide what is, in the final analysis, the law. And the law is, is an immensely important concept. Uh, 
you know, we have the Ten Commandments for a reason. We need to have rules. If there are no rules, you have chaos. There needs to be law. When law breaks down, society breaks down. You have chaos. And so this is no small thing. And they so, make sense, right? I, if you asked a person that didn't, didn't even know what the Ten Commandments are and asked them, is it okay to kill? Most people would say no. Is it okay to steal? These are things that are intrinsic to us that we know in order to be a fair society, a fair person, you would not break these commandments. You would not break these laws. It just, it's in our heart. It's in our nature. It just makes sense. Now, this particular leak came in a very, very sensitive case. It is a case that deals with abortion. It is a hot topic. It is one that people feel passionately about. It is one that has divided this country for the last 50 years and more. And while the Catholic Church has maintained a, a firm, steady, consistent position on this, that's not really the issue uh, that we're going to discuss today. The issue is uh, breaking an oath um, refusing to abide by a rule. And to do so when you have a position of responsibility, in which case now you threaten uh, breaking the trust that people have in the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that significant? And does that say something about our society? And does that relate, and how does that relate to the Catholic faith? If you're looking at something through a Catholic prism, and you say, okay, well, this is going on in our world around us. What should I think about it? Uh, does it? Does it? Does it? Does our Catholic faith have anything to add to this, or is this purely simply a civil question? And there is an, an element in which uh, the Catholic faith very definitely has something to say about it. But first, let's um, just to give you an, an idea of what people inside the legal community think about how serious this is. There's a, uh, a blog called the SCOTUS blog, Supreme Court of the U.S., SCOTUS, and it's a blog, and it's maintained by journalists who have spent their career covering the court, most of them lawyers. And uh, as soon as this news came out, uh, this is what appeared on that blog, quote, it's impossible to overstate the earthquake this will cause inside the court in terms of the destruction of trust among the justices and staff. This leak is the gravest, most unforgivable sin. Now, isn't that interesting? They use the word sin. This is a breach of trust. And what is, you know, what is any kind of sin? Any, any kind of sin is a breach of trust with God, isn't it? Um, but they talk about the destruction of trust. It's a breaking down. It's, it is a destruction. Um, Politico which um, is not a conservative news outlet um, and who originally uh, covered the leak. The leak involved the, not, not just uh, somebody's you know, personal kind of viewpoint on what the court was doing. It wasn't just a leak that said, hey, the court's going to vote this way or that. No, it was the entire 100-plus page draft of an opinion, the written opinion of the court. It was the inner workings 
of the court. These, this is a draft that circulated among the justices for their thoughts, for their comments. It's like kind of publishing somebody's diary, you know. And uh, so this is um, this this is this is a sensitive thing. Um, anyways, if, if I understand right, Ray, it was one of the justices who came down on the winning side of a case and his thoughts as to where the case lies and then that was going to go on to other justices to see if they were in agreement. Is that, is that what it was or did I get that wrong? Yeah, it was a draft of uh, supposedly, and, it was a, and I think this has been confirmed by Chief Justice Roberts now, but it was a draft of the majority opinion, which had, according to the leak, at least five votes. It may be a six to three decision or maybe five to four. We don't know exactly but apparently at least had five. So at least it was going to be the decision of the court that uh, Roe versus Wade, which made uh, abortion not just legal, but constitutionally uh, sanctioned, something that was an actual constitutional right, the ability to have the right, to have, so-called right to have an abortion uh, was the law for all 50 states. And this decision basically said, according to this uh, first draft, that uh, that no, uh, the U.S. That this was not a constitutional right, and now every individual state was going to be able to decide whether or not people would be allowed to have abortions within that particular state. Um, but anyways, so that that leaked opinion, that entire draft, was published by Politico, and Politico, in their article where they published this acknowledged or indicated that they had spoke with one former Supreme Court clerk. And according to Politico, he said that the clerk was horrified. Quote, this leak has to come from a clerk or, or justice themselves. It is intended to blow up the court. Criminal investigation needs to happen now. Uh, going for some uh, additional reactions, uh, there's a... Uh, Criminal law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. His name is Orrin Kerr, and um, indicated, "Hey, this isn't this is this, this is potentially not a criminal matter. There are some federal criminal laws that could have been broken, but it might not be because uh, these opinions of these justices are not classified government material." But he also said, "Quote." This is the most egregious violation of confidentiality for a staff member or employee of the court that you can imagine. Everybody in the legal profession um, agrees. I mean, this is a breach of ethics of the highest order. Michael Frisch, a former disciplinary counsel in Washington, said that if the leaker is identified as an attorney, it would fall to the bar where that lawyer is a member to investigate. It's going to be career-defining if not career-ending. And if the person was not an attorney as yet, planning to become attorney, this would have to seriously be considered. Um, I know in every state that I've been admitted to the bar, they take ethics very, very seriously. After I had been uh, an attorney for some 30 years and was seeking admittance to another state, they wanted me to go back like some 40 years to parking tickets when I was a student at a law school, I had a right to the state, you know, which that law school uh, is situated, and try to find parking tickets. I mean, that's the extent to which, you know, these, these state bar disciplinary commissions look to these ethical considerations. So anyways, so what does that mean? I mean, this, 
This has never happened before. There have been leaks from the court before, but there's never been a leak of an entire opinion like this. What does that mean? And what does that say about our society? You know, you don't, I mean, what if a priest decided, well, okay, I know that the, I, I take an oath that what's said in the confessional is supposed to be confidential. But, you know, this is so important. The guy who confessed this thing to me, it's such a big case. I'm going to break the rules because I decide I can break the rules this time. I mean, my goodness. You know, is everybody then, everybody then afterwards going to confession then have to wonder? I mean, you can see the gravity and the potential, you know, rippling effects that something like this can have and the potential rippling effects inside the court. If you're a justice, if you're one of the nine and you write a draft opinion, do you then circulate it? Do you look at your fellow justices and say to yourself, well, geez, um, who can I trust? I mean— you know, it's like— uh, Or do you look at all of their clerks and say, who do I trust? And do you look at the staff? I, All of a sudden, what was taken for granted and was a really nice system where you could hash these things out that's and try it exactly. to make a good decision— That's it, that's it exactly. —gets blown up. That's it right? exactly. You have a nice a nice system. You have—supposing you you're—supposing you're married and after 10, 20 years, your spouse cheats on you. Does, you know, are things ever the same after that? Can't be. I mean, can they ever be 100% the same? Now, maybe things get patched up, you forgive, and with the mercy, with God-like mercy, you forget, you know, the, the transgression. But they can never, can, can you ever, like, really forget? Can you ever go back? To that, to where you were, can you ever regain that age of innocence? Uh, generally, you know, probably not. Probably not. So, but and what is that? But the, and then I think that's the point. That's what a breach of trust is about, and that's where we enter the territory of well, sinfulness, of you know, going against you know. A moral order. Do we have moral rules? We've had a. There's a lot of things in this country where institutions, people's faith in institutions, has suffered mightily. But the Supreme Court was this august body, and that taint of political divide that is so you know, captivated all the rest of this country hadn't yet touched the court. The court was still, you know, a little sacrosanct. The court was, was still off to the side. It hadn't yet been drawn in, and now it has. And it's just a, it seems like a shame. It's like, is nothing still pure anymore? Now, of course, the court was never pure, but I think you get the idea. You, you almost saw it, Ray, for, you know, certainly for yourself, being an attorney, one thing, but even the rest of us that are simply citizens of this country, we sort of saw that as non-political, that their job, the Supreme Court and the courts, their job was to keep us honest. Their job was to stand out like a bastion and make sure that the executive branch and the legislative branch didn't do things that were wrong. The checks and balances set up so many years ago were protected by this august body that makes sure that we do things the right way. And so for, for my whole life, and I'm old as dirt, right, you, you, you look at the Supreme Court, and it was, I remember when I took my family to Washington, D.C., 
not everybody was enamored with the court, but we went over there to see what it was like and see where these decisions were made and see where these judges thought about everything that was meant by the Constitution and how they held them. That was a big deal for me, right, to show my kids where this happened. This is, this is not like down the street where they're going to throw rocks at each other on a daily basis. This is where people think deep thoughts and come up with right answers, and they don't worry about politics. They worry about what's best and what's right and what's fair. So when you're a first-year law student and you're taking a – every first-year law student uh, takes a constitutional law course where you come across this case. It's known as Marbury versus Madison. It is probably the most significant constitutional law case ever decided by the Supreme Court. It was very – it was when this country was still very, very young. And the court decided we decide what is constitutional. We can invalidate an action of a president or invalidate an action of the entire Congress if we, if we say this violates the Constitution. We are the ultimate, uh, ultimate arbiter of what is the law. And it was a controversial case at the time, but it has stood the test of time. It has been the law of this country, and it has been respected ever since. And why was the court able to get away with that? You know, why was the court able to, to take on, you know, that kind of authority for itself? Why, you know, they just said, hey, we've got this authority. Why were they able to get away with that? Well, for a simple reason. These justices are appointed for life. They are supposedly above the political fray. They don't have to be elected every two years, every six years, every four years, like everybody in Congress, like the President of the United States. They don't have to get elected. There's a reason why the Constitution said they had to be lifetime appointees, so that they weren't going to be pressured by any political considerations. They weren't going to get pressured by popular opinion. They wouldn't have to worry about anything. They would be free to stand up stand taller than everybody else and just simply say, this is the law. All they, had, all they needed to do was focus on what was the good of the country. They were above politics. And it's worked pretty well. There have been obviously some very notable decisions that have gone horribly wrong. But, uh, but you know, that's, that's, been our, that's been our court. Well, anyways, now this leak tends to suggest – uh, no, politics is now part of the court system because the people that are inside that, that court building now have politics on their mind. And so if a, if a, if a clerk leaks it, did they, did they leak it with the wink and a nod of the justice for whom they worked? Did they, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of confusion, all kinds of possibilities that go circling around in people's heads. And that's enough. It doesn't, the court doesn't necessarily have to be now all of a sudden inundated by political considerations. But if people think they are, then that's enough. And you've got members of Congress, leaders, House, Senate, uh, different people um, saying that the court is political, that it is illegitimate. So you've got these statements out there by other people in authority that are undermining the respect that we can have in the institution of the Supreme Court. And so that brings up this question, which is, okay, it's not just the leak itself that has undermined this respect that we can have for this institution of the court, but it's the political debate that now surrounds it 
and people now attacking the legitimacy of the court. It's as if people are trying to undermine this institution for political ends and you know, that type of thing. I mean, this is not something that has never happened before uh, in this country. Uh, back back uh, when Franklin Roosevelt was president, there was a court packing threat because some of these court decisions weren't going his way. Um, so there have been different, different, different things in, in our history that have occurred uh, where this sort of thing has you know, had a, a, a certain kind of effect. But nevertheless, this is what's going on today. And uh, so, um, so is it – how do we look at this? There is an element. There's a, there's a, there's a, a way of thinking. There's a political philosophy that holds to the idea that you have to break things down and, so that we can build them back up in a different way. Um, it's a political philosophy. You can trace the tenets of this uh, back to the 1930s in Germany and earlier. Uh, but there's, there's, this, there's this way of thinking that says we've got to basically burn things down and then we can build them back up. And is that a healthy thing? We've you know, been going through basically a long introduction to the real discussion we want to have, which is this. What is the Catholic faith's position on an issue like this? Is there some way of looking at things through the prism of the Catholic faith that suggests some viewpoint that we should have in regard to this? How do we look at the world? How do we look at these developments? How do we look at this? Do we really know our Catholic faith if we're going to become more educated in our faith? Is there something that we can learn about this? And the, the, the theme for this particular program is the answer to that question is yes. The answer to that question is yes. And it starts with this, this letter that we had from St. Paul where he talks about building up, building up. There's a... You want to build up the church. You want to build up this unity of people in love, people growing together with gentleness and kindness and love for one another. We're going to build up a kinder, gentler society, to borrow a phrase, um, where people can, yes, trust one another, where people have concern for one another. And so there's that human community that we're trying to build up. But then we're also trying to build up something in addition. We're trying to build a connection with Christ and with God. The focus is not just to build up a community here on earth that is harmonious and well-balanced and, and all those good things, but it's got to have this direction where it's looking up, reaching up, straining up towards Christ. And if you can build that, you, it's like building, it's like instead of building something on, on, on sand, you're building something that will last forever. It will have eternal ramifications. The church is eternal. That's what St. Paul had in mind. That was his vision. It wasn't just short, uh, it wasn't just 
something short or small or limited to this world. No, it was uh, it was something that reached to all peoples all around the globe. Obviously, he was uh, the man who wanted to bring you know the faith, or his mission was to bring the faith to the Gentiles. So everybody, everywhere on earth for all time, and not just until the end of the world, but beyond the end of the world for all time. Something huge, something big, something connected to God. It's this idea of building versus the idea of destroying. That It's a positive versus a negative kind of way of looking at the world. Matter of fact, is in the letter to the Romans, St. Paul makes repeated references to the fact everything is clean. Everything is clean. There's no food. If you're a Jew and, you know, you now want to subscribe to the Christian faith, you don't have to hang on to the old Jewish tradition that said you can't eat certain foods. Everything is clean. Everything is good. Everything is created by God and is therefore good. That's the way, you know, we should look at the world. Everything in the world is good. Tearing things down, breaking things down, burning things down. No, we don't have to look, we don't have to think that way. We can think that life is, that the world is full of beauty and truth and goodness. We can look at the world that way. That, in fact, was a realization that uh, a famous writer, famous author, came to. His name was C.S. Lewis. He's a convert to the Christian faith. Um, he was, in fact, a staunch atheist. Um, and he describes sort of like this turmoil that was going on in his head on precisely these two different ways of looking at the world. And he said, the two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest conflict, on the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought to be grim and meaningless. He was a man, of course he wrote, you know, Chronicles of Narnia and, and these, you know, mythical uh, stories and so forth, where... There's this imaginary world, and it can be filled with poetry and, you know, beauty and art and, and all this goodness, but that the real world is a very different place. And when you look at the world rationally and with a, you know, with, 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 with just an objective kind of a lens, the world's a cruel, hard place. And those two visions are in sharp conflict. And the only way, you know, if you want to find a world where everything is beautiful and everybody is good and every, everybody is loving, well, then you got to enter the world of the, of the imaginary. It's only in the, the fictional you know, places where your mind can go, where they can imagine things like that, where you're going to find it. You're not going to find it in reality. And he had a problem with that. Was that the right way to look at things? Did it have to be that way? And it kind of came to a seminal moment for him. And he said, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen. He was a college student at this point. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him 
whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term, uh, Trinity College in, in Britain, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. This was the mental turmoil that he was in. He wanted beyond all else to deny that God was God, to deny that there was a God. He wanted to be a staunch atheist. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. He saw there was beauty and goodness in the world. There's a concept of truth, goodness, and beauty. Some uh, secular thinkers, classical philosophers, for example, changed up that order. It's truth, beauty, and goodness. You may have heard that, that phrase from time to time. In the Catholic tradition over the centuries, they've kind of changed that order a little bit. And it's truth, goodness, and beauty. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is, okay, so let's explain. So truth is being. Truth is reality. Truth, there's a truth behind existence. What exists is connected to a truth. And if you want to find truth, you look at the world. There is an order to the world. The classical philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, they firmly believe that. There is an order to things. And so first you discover that. And the Catholic tradition, then that leads you to goodness. And you can act in harmony with that order when you act with goodness in your heart. If you act out of love, if you act with kindness towards other people, we're all united, we're all together. As uh, a uh, professor from Boston College, a tremendous um, professor, is a guy who wrote a tremendous article about C.S. Lewis, his name is Peter Kraft, and uh, he wrote about truth, goodness, and beauty. And he said, the Catholic view is, is kind of like this. You know, the classical thinkers, Plato and Aristotle, they believed in truth, beauty, and goodness. But, and, and that's so that, you know, God has, it's, it's almost as if there's, well, it's almost as if these things exist. Um, and then we find them out and we act in order with them. The Catholic view is um, not that, Okay, the Catholics, Catholics, as Catholics, we believe in a God, but it's not that God has truth, God has beauty, God has goodness. But excuse me, God is truth. God is goodness. God is beauty. And when he created, he imbued the world with this. He put some of himself into his creation. From the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, it says we were created in God's image. We were created with truth, with goodness, with beauty. And so the reason why the Catholic faith believe, believes that the order should be truth, goodness, and beauty, first you discover God. You discover the order behind everything. You discover you discover this 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 all-powerful, all-benevolent, all-merciful God, and that he's behind everything. You discover that truth, you and the truth is Christ. You discover the truth of Christ. Then you act with goodness. You act with love towards your fellow man. And then what happens? 
Well, in the final analysis, in the final analysis, you go to heaven. You come into contact with pure beauty. You come into contact. You have some union with God himself. That's why beauty comes last. That's, that's the goal of our journey. The target is not destruction. The target is beauty. The target is building ourselves up, building those around us up, building, building up the church to the point that hopefully all of us reach that, that state of being able to see beauty beyond our wildest imagination. So that's a little bit of this, this Catholic idea of how we should look at the world. And that's what, that's what C.S. Lewis um, discovered. It's all related to God. All of it's related to God. He said, you know, that when he learned this, he learned about the fact that you know, everything involves offering yourself back to God, offering everything back to God. It is just then that it begins to really be his own. For now, man is beginning to take a share in his own creation, he wrote. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. I mean, why is that? Not, well, he, he then continues, he answers that in what he says next. He says, what we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. At some point, you try to keep things, you try to do things on your own. At some point, this earthly life is going to end. And if, and if you haven't lost it before then, these things that you're trying to cling on to, you're going to lose by then. You, for many people, you're going to lose it sooner. Um, if you try to, for example, control everything around you, um, I, I, I can handle things. And, you know, you try to make the most money you can so that you can, you know, do everything so that you don't have any, any worries um, if we, you know, try to, if we think we can control the climate without any kind of help from God, whatever it is, if we think we can do it on our own, we're going to find out we can't, not without help. And the peace that we think that we're trying to create for ourselves, the peace of mind that we're trying to create for ourselves, we're going to lose. Because, you know, we're going to try harder and harder. You're going to have to continually try harder and harder to get more money, to get more security, you know. You're not going to be able to live a life with, that's free from worry. And if you're going to try for that, because then you'll have true peace of mind, you're going to lose it. But like I said, even if it doesn't happen soon, it, you know, those kinds of losses will occur when this life is over. And you find instead when you give everything to God, that's when you start to receive more and more. And then when you, when you give, then you find he'll shower you with gifts and graces more than you could possibly imagine, surely more than you could ever you know, begin to do on your own. You'll receive more that way. And why? Because in, in keeping with this idea of truth, beauty, and goodness, excuse me, truth, goodness, and beauty, um, you're living in harmony with the reality that is there. You know, that's a, 
Ray, beautiful and brilliant point. The God is all good. He is nothing but beauty. He made nothing but beauty. Now, he made the world and allowed us to choose what we desire. He didn't tell us what we had to do. He told us what we could do. But all things that come from God are good. And then he allows us to go whichever direction we want. And so he encourages us, desires us, sent his son to help us understand what was good, and then allows us to choose that. And that's what you're saying. We have that choice. We have the capability. Sometimes we get confused and we blame God for the bad things that are there, the things that didn't go the way we wanted, the things that are hurtful or cause us problems. The fact of the matter is God didn't create those, right? He created us, and he created all good things, and we choose and allow ourselves to go the wrong direction. He created the beauty, and we decide when we want to be selfish, when we want to have more than needed, when we don't care about our brother as much as we care about ourselves, we choose that wrong direction. And and I would go, just to, to carry on from that, I would go to this point. And, and it's this. We're more likely to do that if we don't look for the truth, beauty, the truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. Uh, we're more likely to stray from the path if we're not finding the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that's in the world. If we don't have a positive outlook on things, if we have a negative outlook, we're going to be more likely to act in a negative fashion. So I got a, I got a question, which is this. Is there truth, beauty? Is there truth, goodness, and beauty in the Supreme Court? C.S. Lewis, Peter Kraft, Catholic thinking, um, it holds that since God is these three things, since God had be imbued his creation with these three things, if we look at the world like God, we can see his hand in everything. We can see these three things in everything. Well, if that's true, let's, let's put it to the test. Is that true? If that's true, we should be able to find that in the Supreme Court. Uh, you might think, well, that's kind, of, that's kind of a stretch. But I think we can do it. For example, truth. Truth. Can you correlate truth with the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Look, it's something... And I would I would say this it's it has to do with something that we talked about before, which is these nine justices have lifetime appointments to the court. Why do they have lifetime appointments to the court? So that they're free from ulterior considerations. So they can be free to look for the truth. They're free to look for the right answer. The only thing that really impinges on their decision-making is what they think the decision ought to be. They're free to look for the truth. We want them to find the true answer to these questions that we can't decide for ourselves. If you've got differences of opinion in lower courts, goes up to the Supreme Court. And if you just have another court that's just coming up with its own view and it's, you know, it's just, well, because of its position in the hierarchy, it just happens to be at the top. Well, okay, this is the one we're going to have to follow. That doesn't work. The only way that it can break these 
uh, stalemates between diverging and opposing lower court decisions is if we think that the decision by the Supreme Court is somehow better than these lower courts, that it's the true answer. Now, okay, fine. This is an imperfect world. Is that always the case? No. But that's, the, that's what the system is aiming for. You're never going to find perfection in a human system. But if you find that that's the goal, that's the way that it was designed to be, that it's at least got that as its objective, then I would say you've got this element of uh, this divine creation in it. It's, it's, this, it's this situation where humans, when they're designing a system, are trying to find the divine. They're trying to find the truth. All right. So that's, uh, that's one of the three elements. How about the other two in the Supreme Court? Can we make a case for them? Well, how about goodness? How about goodness? Well, this is something that we talked about as well earlier. And even if we're talking just inside the court building, just inside this relationship that the nine justices have to one another, can we find goodness? Without even having to stretch it beyond that, but just looking in that limited scope itself, well, yeah. We talked earlier about how these justices have this collegiality. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Justice Antonin Scalia were advocates for their respective positions. One was very conservative. One was very liberal. One is uh, championed uh, or champion of and, and someone who's uh, admired uh, by people with conservative viewpoints. One is uh, someone who uh, championed um, liberal viewpoints and is admired still by liberal people today. Um, and they got along great together. They couldn't have disagreed more on principle, but they both respected one another. They respected the legal acumen that each one of them had. They respected themselves as, as respected each other as persons of integrity. You know, they, they agreed to disagree and did so in a collegial atmosphere. That can be broken now. You have someone breach this trust inside that tight circle, whether it's even if it's just by a clerk, which is probably which, uh, the indications are that's the most likely scenario. Still, that 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 trust inside that that core group is is harmed. It's broken. You've got nine justices. Each one of them's got four four law clerks. You're talking 36 people. Nine plus the 36. That's still a small group of people. 45 people, and so now you can be talking. And and those 36 clerks, they they're bound by this this code of ethics for law clerks, which is you have to maintain maintain this strict confidentiality. You break that trust. You break that collegiality. You're acting. You know, there's an element that's interjected into that relationship, which is not goodness. It's not, it's, not, it's not loving towards the other people. It's not respectful towards the other people involved. It's looking out for my interest and not theirs. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, there is, there is goodness here in the court that has existed previously. 
And if you contrast that, Ray, with political figures that are on opposite sides of the scale, they couldn't be nastier to each other. They throw rocks and drag people down and look for pictures of them in places that they shouldn't be. And they're going up to the person in dinner and taking pictures and yelling in their face and causing all kind of trash and trouble. And here you have these two people that are on completely different sides of positions, yet they respected each other, they trusted each other, they worked with one another. That's what you would hope we would have from our officials. That's what you desire. And so now we're trying to tear that down in the one place where it exists. You don't find that in the legislature. You don't find that the party that's in control is reaching across the aisle to those that are not. You find them pushing that minority opinion down wherever, wherever it is. We need more of this that's at the Supreme Court. And so certainly I, there's, there's no doubt that the goodness is there between these people. They want the right thing to happen. Even if they disagree with what's going to occur, they want the right thing to happen. And isn't it Christian? Yeah. Scalia and Ginsburg. And I believe Ginsburg's religious, I believe Scalia was Catholic and Ginsburg was Jewish. No matter. Isn't it Christian, though, in the way they uh, acted towards one another? What does, uh, what does our Christian faith tell us about dealing with our enemies? We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to act with kindness and gentleness to enemies. It's one of the radical messages of Christ. That was a really radical message. And this is what I think Scalia and Ginsburg could, could set, be said to be examples of. They were following that, you know, that example. And if that's broken now, I mean, isn't that, isn't that a shame? So, okay, truth uh, truth and goodness. What about beauty? What is beautiful about the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, I'll tell you what's beautiful. The law. Order. There is an element of beauty to things fitting together, working together. I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the Catholic faith is that it has existed for 2,000 years and it has a theology and a philosophy that covers every conceivable human condition, every situation, every, every kind of exchange that can come between people. And it's got an answer for all of them. And it all fits together. There's an order to Catholic theology. There's an, you know, we can find, we can find order in... Uh, you know, in, in physics and the way things work together. And when things fit together in a beautiful fashion, there's beauty in that. St. Paul talks about how the body is constructed in such a magical way that everything works together perfectly. Well, there's beauty in that. Why, why not? We're created in the image of God. God created it. Of course there's beauty in it. There's beauty in, um, for example, you have, a, you have an artist who... Um, creates a musical composition, and all the the notes just flow together so that they create this, you know, this, this soothing, balanced melody. These things they they fit together. There's beauty in that. There is beauty in order. There's beauty in the universe where all, you know, the planets and, and everything that that exists, you know, it all it all functions in ways that scientists are still just beginning to scratch the surface to understand. 
There's beauty in that. And if you're going to have a, you know, a law, a body of law that regulates and maintains fairness amongst all people, there's beauty in that too. And that's what the court um, is, 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 um, is, is, is charged with uh, coming up with, with defining, with refining. So there's, there is truth and beauty and goodness in the Supreme Court um, because, you know, it is, as St. Paul says, part of God's creation. It's, nothing is unclean. And if we can find truth, goodness, and beauty, uh, I got the order correct that time, uh, if we can find those things in the Supreme Court, yeah, we can find it in everything around us if we look for it. Because God is real. God is in everything. He's behind everything. This is the vision that St. Paul had. This is the vision that we should have. This is the Catholic way of looking at the world. It is one that talks about building up, about looking at everything as if there's, 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 there's positive uh, aspects and, and the good aspects beautiful aspects, truthful aspects to the entire world around us, and that we should be looking to, to build on these, on these things as opposed to looking to how to destroy any part of God's, God's creation. So that's our program uh, this time around. We hope that you found it perhaps a little thought-provoking, uh, a little interesting, maybe a little, hopefully a little enjoyable, and we hope you'll enjoy us uh, and you'll join us again next time. But until then, we're going to leave you, as we always do, with a prayer. And for that, we turn once more to our deacon in training, soon to be ordained, I would add. Uh, so, Bob, if you would help us with a closing prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this world that we have, the beautiful world that you have created. Everything you put into this world is good. You are good, and you made it good. Allow us to continue to look for that. Allow us to look for opportunities to take care of one another, to do things the right way. Allow us to look up with esteem to organizations like the Supreme Court that do things so well, that look for truth and justice. Allow us to trust and to love and to take care of one another, always looking for the good. It's easy to look for the bad. It's, it's right there. It's simple, and it's hurtful, and we do it, and it, it's what we think was right. Yet it's harder to look for the beauty, to look for that opportunity, to look for the good, to do something for someone else besides ourself. That's what you would desire. That's what your son preached and taught us. And we ask that we can learn from him and try to find the goodness and the beauty in everything that we touch. And we pray all this in the wonderful and glorious name of that son, that son of yours that came and opened the gates to heaven, the most beautiful place in the world, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name and of the Father, and of the and Son, and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. <laughs>